decision-making or neurological decision-making apparatus evolved to assume that decisions were all really important. They were about starvation and survival and reproduction. And so now we're using that same brain to make decisions about, well, do I want the pad tire or the pad CU? Welcome back. You're listening to Let It Out, a podcast hosted by me, Katie Dalebout. This week, I'm talking to Adam Strauss. He's a comedian and an actor in New York City, a writer, really cool dude. I met at his show, The Mushroom Cure, which we talk about several times during this episode. It was very serendipitous because it was on my block near my apartment basically underneath my apartment, which we talk about. And I went to on a whim and I related so much. I ended up seeing the show twice. I saw the last show he did in New York City where we did a talk back after, but we recorded this conversation between the two times I saw his show just before Christmas and talked about some new stuff that he's working on, a lot about mental health, not feeling good enough, OCD, anxiety, indecision, comedy, psychedelics. It's a long one, but it's a fascinating one. And I'm really happy I recorded this with Adam and that I met Adam and I'm excited for you guys to hear it. Before we get to the episode, quickly, I just want to tell you a couple announcements. Again, keeping these short because the episode itself is very long, but I'm going to be doing likes and learns again. A couple of you asked, I just forgot the last couple episodes. So at the end of this episode, stick around. I'll tell you one thing I'm liking, one thing I'm learning. And last week's Valentine's Day special, thank you for all of your kind notes and feedback. That meant so much to me. My heart was, is in a really tender spot and your support as my friends was really sweet and lovely and I appreciate it. That's that. And if you want to start a podcast, I've been getting a lot of messages about how do you start a podcast? What microphone do you use? How do you get sponsors? How do you ask people to come on the podcast? I actually made a workshop about this and I do podcast advising. It's called Let a Podcast Out. And you can find out more about that and you can get a tour of the workshop if you want to. The link to that is in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, check out Adam's shows. He's still doing the mushroom cure. And he's working on something new and he does comedy and maybe we can all go together. I think that would be a really fun let it outing we could do together. Anyway, I'll talk to you guys at the end. Enjoy this episode with Adam. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Four Sigmatic. I love Four Sigmatic, you guys. I even had the founder, Taro, on the podcast years ago. They are a mushroom company. They make these wonderful superfood mushroom products, which is fitting to today's episode. They're these delicious, easy to make mushroom beverages that come in a wide variety, all having superfoods in them. 
and I love their hot cacao mix right now. I've been having it with macadamia nut milk. Their matcha is really good. Their coffee drinks, a lot of people love. Their chai is one of my favorite. Amanda, who works with me, puts it in her oatmeal. I've been putting it in my coconut yogurt. It's great in smoothies. You can use it so many different ways. I love all of their products. They even now make a mask. They make a mushroom face mask. They're getting into the skincare game and their stuff is wonderful. I really, really highly recommend all of their products. You can get 15% off your order by heading to foursigmatic.com slash Katie and using the code Katie at checkout. That's K-A-T-I-E. Again, 15% off your order by going to foursigmatic.com slash Katie and using the code Katie at checkout. Their mushroom hot cacao is my favorite. I use two packets in macadamia nut milk. It's so good. Sometimes I add honey as well. I think you guys will really like that one. That's the one I'm shouting out right now. But honestly, whatever you are into, they've got a product for you. This episode is brought to you in part by Emmy's Organics, some of my favorite snacks in the world. I love their founder, Samantha. They are this wonderful company that makes this delicious treat that satisfies a sweet tooth, that satisfies a craving. I'm going to get one right after this. They're made with almond flour and coconut flour, very simple ingredients. They're organic, gluten-free, vegan, grain-free, soy-free. They're great with a cup of coffee or tea, a little dessert. My friend Carolina puts them in her kid's lunch as a treat. You can find them nationwide at Whole Foods or Sprouts or CVS or at emmysorganics.com where you can get 40% off of your first order with the code let it out. Again, that's 40%. That's almost half off of all of the presents at emmysorganics.com with the code let it out. Another thing I really love about this company is they're a certified B Corp, which is considered the highest standard of corporate responsibility. They were founded in a home kitchen by my friend Samantha and her husband Ian, and they started in 2009, and I just love this company. For some reason, I thought it was relevant to tell you they started in 2009. I don't know. Maybe that'll get you to order the fact that they were founded that year. I don't know. It was a recession-ish, maybe. Anyway, get 40% off your first order by going to emmysorganics.com and entering the code Let It Out at checkout. Thank you, Emmys. I love you guys. Thanks for ha- having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah, me too. As you know, I saw your show, The Mushroom Cure, and it was in the building where I lived, which was so funny because I, I went on a whim and did you do you literally live in that building? Yeah, I live above it. Oh, like, that to the whole... right. Yeah. This will depict how close I live. <laughs> I couldn't, which we'll get into. I couldn't decide on what I was wearing that day. It was summer, but it's like so cold inside. So it's hard to like yeah. to hot outside. It's a whole thing. And you know, my decision stuff. So I get in there and I'm like, oh man, I should have worn the other outfit. It's kind of chilly. So before you started, I left, went up to my apartment, <laughs> changed, and came back before you came on stage. So that's how close I am. I, I <laughs> very much appreciate that. And if I had the luxury of doing that when <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it was it was like so funny. Just in general, that would have been a funny thing. But then when we saw the <laughs> content you, of your show, right. I was like, "That's a hilarious way to have started this." But anyway, we'll we'll get into this. But I I had such a crazy year with with my anxiety and just so many nasty habits and routines really 
manifesting and decision making for me, yeah. especially being like my first full year living in New York and just the sheer amount of decisions in this city is something I definitely want to talk yeah. about, but is just more than one. Of, I think we should evolutionary have to make, you know? Yeah. I have. Yes. It's really challenging. And so I was really struggling to like articulate everything I was going through in my mind to my boyfriend. And we saw your show together on a whim and I turned to him and I was like, I've never felt more articulated <laughs> and with a piece of art. And it was so cool for him to be able to see like, oh, that's, that's what it's like to be in your head, mm. not from me saying it, you know? Yeah. And that was so helpful. And I just loved the show. You know, I laughed, I cried. It was, it was so great. So anyway, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad it connected. I, yeah. I'm sorry it connected. I know. I know. Sake, that's, but, <laughs> that's what you said to me after. Right. That was so funny. Yeah. People, when they relate, I'm like, oh, sorry about that. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. I've now been using that line. Like when people tell me on the podcast, they're like, oh, I relate. I'm like, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Sucks for you. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. But let's go back to the beginning. So what were you like as a kid? Where did you grow up? I know you're from the East Coast. And did you know you wanted to be a comic? So I was a pretty popular, attractive captain of the football team. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I was uh, I was a weird kid, I guess I would say. I was, well, it's, so this new show that I, I've just been yeah. telling you prior to the microphone is turning on that I'm grappling with now. I was going to say struggling, but I guess it's just part of the process. But, yeah. You're in it. Um, but grappling. It feels like, yeah, it just feels like a, I, I'm in it. And and it's it's kind of this this act of faith that assuming if if I bang my head against the wall of the show enough, something, somehow the act of banging my head against that wall is maybe rejiggering stuff in my brain that it's all going to make sense. Anyway, so I was, yeah, I grew up suburban Boston, Newton, Massachusetts. And I suppose I'm unusual in that my very first action as an independent human has been recorded, which was that when the maternity nurse handed me to my mother, she told my mom, I had just done something. I came out, the nurse leaned over to put in these antibiotic eye drops that I guess is a standard practice. And the nurse told my mom when she leaned over to do that, I reached up and swatted her hand away. <laughs> and she'd never seen a baby do that before. Of course, infants, you know, you don't have visual acuity or motor control. It was probably random, but it didn't seem that way to the nurse. Yeah. And I look at that as, at least in the context of some of the writing I'm doing, you know, this desire to control and protect myself being there from a very early age. Again, I think you can make too much out of these early childhood stories. It could be random, but certainly that desire to control and protect did manifest at a very young age. And yeah. yeah. I mean, I believe it all like affects us in some way yeah. subconsciously, like all of those little things add up and it doesn't mean that it's going to change the course of our lives. And it's just, the, there's all affecting everyone. So it's not like we're different or special, but I think like the trauma of being born and like coming right, out of the world experience. is like, yeah, really, <laughs> yeah, really hard good. to be a person. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened next after you, you swat the nurse away? And then <laughs> so I had, I, I got, you know, outwardly, my, my parents were and still are very happily married. Two brothers and sisters. I have brothers and sisters. I, I'm the oldest. I have a brother who's three years younger, a sister who's seven years younger. But from a very early age, despite this seemingly happy home, I was an extremely volatile kid from a very, very young age. And specifically, I would get into these huge fights with my mother. She would ask me to do things that were not unreasonable in a parent-child relationship, you know, pick up your toys or don't read at the dinner table. And I would refuse. 
And it would escalate to the point that I would just get these uncontrollable fits of rage and I would smash my toys. Sometimes I would punch through windows. Sometimes I would hit her. Sometimes she would hit me back. And these fights usually ended in the same way, which was with my mother crying. Mm. She was a young mom. She was, you know, she was 26 when I was born. And I was a handful. And I think she did her best, but I, I think she felt hopeless and helpless. And I felt because... I knew she was a good mom and I was making her cry that I was a bad kid in some way that there was something that I was, I was bad. I was, I was bad that I was making this nice woman cry and I'd resolved to myself. I'm not going to, you know, tomorrow I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, I'll clean up my toys, but the dynamic would repeat almost every day. And I do still believe, I mean, I have a different view in terms of blaming myself but I do believe that I was the primary source of unhappiness for my parents for most of my childhood. Now, they loved me, and I think I brought a lot of joy to them. I don't think they ever felt that we, we wish we didn't have this kid, but I think I caused a lot of strife. And I can trace that to this sort of, there was an intensity. I had these strong emotions. I didn't know how to handle them. They didn't know how to handle them. No one you know, in the society now, maybe a little bit, at least in some of, you know, maybe New York and San Francisco and LA, but no one talks about, there's no training in how to deal outside of this sort of psychotherapy paradigm. So yeah, I look at it as I had these extremely strong emotional, you know, physical sensations in my body that would arise and I didn't know how to handle them. And so I, I lashed out and my mother didn't know how to handle them. So yeah. it kind of created this dynamic. And then once that shame set in, I think that kind of fed the anger because we would start to get into a fight and I'd feel like, okay, I don't want this to happen. I don't want to feel ashamed. And then I would try to suppress that and that would cause more internal conflict. And uh, that was a strong current. And then when I was, I was probably 12, 11 or 12, I realized that the source of all of my unhappiness was actually that I was uh, hideously ugly. So it was kind of this situation where I had started to become aware of girls. I was aware that I liked girls. I mean, I didn't have an awareness of sex per se. I, you know, I'd heard the word, but there was just sort of this, oh, I want to be around girls more than I want to be around little boys. And, and then the concept of, well, you know, some kids at school are good looking. Am I good looking? And I started looking in the mirror more and more and spending minutes and then hours staring at myself. And of course, if you stare at yourself too long in the mirror <laughs> and never good. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of dawned on me. Also, people would often tell me that I look like my mother, which already you don't like to hear as a fifth grade boy. But my mother, so I particularly fixated on my lips. And my mother has you know, thick lips. Now, now I like my lips, but they are undeniably thick. And yeah, so I came to this conclusion that I was, yeah, not unattractive, but really hideously ugly mm. to the point that I thought it even explained the dynamic with my mother because I realized, and I really, I say realized because it wasn't like I thought this, these were insights of truth that came to me that, oh, this is in, why I can't get along with her because at some level I'm so ugly that she can't love me. And I sense that at some, at age 12, I came up with this whole, and that dominated my life until I was 18. If you'd asked me, and sometimes people did ask me, therapists, I believe that really the 
only major source of suffering in my life was that I was hideously ugly. And, you know, if I'd been born maybe 10 or 15 years later, plastic surgery then was kind of a common, not common, but, but, you know, I'm growing up in the, in the eighties, no one has plastic surgery. So it's like, there's nothing I can do. I'm going to, no one's going to love me. I'm going to be this hideous monster for the rest of my life. Isn't it interesting the stories we tell ourselves about yeah. ourselves and then how they can like change the trajectory of our lives. So then when did you realize that that wasn't true? And that was just a story you were telling yourself. Well, so I finally, so it, like many of these stories, it kind of creates its own reality. You know, we think our, our stories are our interpretations of reality, but of course they shape our reality. So in this- And we think we're the only one that's ever thought that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So in this case, believing I was really ugly, of course, that changed the way people reacted to me, particularly women or girls, really. I'm talking about, you know, high school where, you know, there were some girls who liked me, but- I was so convinced of my hideousness that I either wouldn't see it or I would kind of, I don't remember the, exactly how the dynamic played out, but I was so invested in the story, not that I wanted it to be true. I was just so certain of it um, because every time I looked in the mirror, it was more confirmation. Did you ever talk to, did you talk to anyone about this? Were you in therapy at a young age? So I, I was in therapy. So I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, okay. which was known at least then, I, I don't know if this is still the case, as having the highest per capita of psychotherapists of any any, uh, any city in the country. Were your parents therapists? No, they, they weren't. And in fact, neither of my parents have ever been to therapy in their life. Other My parents grew up, you know, basically poor New Yorkers, but poor in a way that doesn't exist now. Like poor, you know, like lower middle class. My mother's father was a Pepsi distributor. He died when she was young which is something that I've realized how significant that was, you know, for her. But my father's father worked in a uh, watch factory. But this was a time when, you know, you could actually, you could have a decent life on that sort of blue collar income. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so no, the only time either of them have ever been to therapy to this, to this date is, uh, you know, some group sessions with me when I was growing up. But so I was in therapy for these huge fights with my mom. And so from the time you were like kid young, young, and then yeah. through high school. Yeah. So were you talking about this story you're telling yourself in therapy? I don't know if I ever, if it ever came up, it was mostly about these fights with my mom and my inability to control my emotions. Cause that was a theme, the anger, which really only manifested with my mom and at home, but also this, you know, anxiety, rigidity, that intensity. Yeah. So did it, did it help? Did the therapy help? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm, I'm not a big believer. And I mean, this is, I don't want to say I'm not a big believer in therapy. I think, I guess the older I get and the more I've explored different healing modalities, the less stock I place on insight. I think knowing what's going on doesn't lead to change. It can lead to change if you then resolve to take certain actions to change it. Yeah. But well, I feel like I I kind of agree with that, but I think without having had it originally, would you have the awareness that you mm -hmm. need to change? Right. I think it's like it's kind of needed at least as a step to other things. Yeah. And to articulate like this isn't just in your head. This is an actual, this is a thing. That's, that's how, well, it is actually just in your head. I guess that's the, it's both. Right. That's a good point. And I think I am being too hard on therapy. I, I'll take it back. I don't know how much I benefited from the childhood therapy because yeah. I don't think, well, because ultimately let's, let's break it down now. I mean, 
my senses, you know enough about OCD to know that what I, what I was going through would today be considered body dysmorphic disorder. Mm -hmm. But I never heard that term until, yeah. you know, decades later. Yeah. So I think had I seen a therapist who had said, oh, this is what's going on. So your therapist wasn't able to do that. Right. Didn't have that training. Right. So or... it was more like psychodynamic mm -hmm. talking about the relationship with my mother. There was value in the insight. And undoubtedly going through a lot of therapy for my formative years, I'm sure shaped the way my own consciousness and intellect developed for better or for worse. Or at least had some terminology to articulate it. Yeah. Or... But that's interesting. It's like, it really speaks to the point of the specific therapist is so crucial yes. and their expertise of like, do they specialize in eating disorders or do they specialize in knowing these certain conditions or are they going to focus on this one particular thing? And people have talked about that a lot in this podcast. We've talked mm. about like finding the right therapist yeah. of like, it's like dating or it's like, you know, yeah. you have to kiss a lot of frogs or you have to just like <laughs> figure out what's right for you. And that can be a challenge. And then also like sometimes staying in, therapy or with the same therapist, it's just, I found is just like a, a loop, you know, it's kind mm -hmm. of the same thing over again. You kind of reach a plateau yeah, and then you're just kind thing. of, yeah. So how did you eventually see that was a story and, and diagnose that as body dysmorphia? I did eventually have a girlfriend. It was the summer after senior year of high school and we actually fell in love. And now from the vantage points of decades removed and having, you know, other relationships, I can say, yeah, I was legit. We were legitimately in love. It was yeah. very, but of course I had so much need and desperation. It, I wouldn't say it was a totally healthy balanced relationship, but, yeah. but it, it, there was genuine love there. And then when that ended, I of course took that as further evidence of my hideousness, mm. that even someone who loved me couldn't get past that. And I wound up in a mental hospital. Mm. And again, they missed, you know, I was, di they diagnosed me with depression, which I, I wasn't. It was this obsessive anxiety. And yeah. then the rumination around it, like, well, I can never have a normal life and all this. So, and then when I got out of the, that hospital, I went back to school. I was, I was in college at this point. Mm -hmm. Where'd you go to school? Uh, Brown. Okay. Honestly, it's a pretty, it's a pretty straightforward story. I started. Um, I'm deciding what term to use. I'll use the college term. I started hooking up with a lot of girls. Yeah, I started meeting women in college, and there was one particular woman. But I still hold I held on to this story. I shouldn't say it wasn't like dozens, but you know, I for the first time, women were clearly interested in me. Yeah. But I still held on to the story, and I but I remember the moment it changed. I'll never forget this. There was a woman. You know, we were in the same dorm and you know we'd make out sometimes mm -hmm. and and I actually rather liked her she was a very smart perceptive person but she was kind of she had just gotten out of a relationship and she would sometimes she was kind of on the fence about me and mm -hmm. would sometimes be a little bit mean to me like or kind of toy with me a little bit and she said something nice like really sweet I don't remember what it was but I remember my response you know she says I'm like you know you're actually a pretty good guy or something like that and mm -hmm. I was like yeah but you know it's too bad that I'm ugly and she was just shocked. Like she was like, what, what do you mean? I was like, I'm ugly. And, and she was so obviously taken aback. And then she said a sentence that I'll never forget or two sentences. She said, even Tanaz thinks you're cute. We were talking the other day and she said, you and Jeff are the only two cute guys in our dorm. And Tanaz was her roommate who hated me for whatever reason. And I guess I'm codependent enough that still bothers me that this woman hated me, for, but she really didn't like me. Maybe she thought I was not good for her friend. And it was like so obvious that this woman, Jenny was her name, she wouldn't have fabricated this whole thing right. on the fly. And it just kind of was like, wow. oh, I was wrong about that. 
isn't that interesting how we can believe something about ourselves and then like one thing, because a belief is just a thought we think a bunch of times. Yeah, and that's a good way to look at it. Having someone like if like this table we're looking at like shoots a hole in one of the legs of the table the whole thing comes down yeah like that's happened to me and then you know sometimes i construct the table again but like for sure with body (laughs) dysmorphia for me well not even body dysmorphia just like not thinking i'm pretty enough Mm -hmm. or not thinking i'm smart enough and then you know a teacher says something to me like you're actually a good writer and then that could like could not even I be true. I heard you talking about this on a podcast Yeah, but then it can yeah. kind of like change the course of your life or like that yeah. little line, like things get in there and can change it for the positive. And then same thing to the negative of like something that someone told me in 2003 is like <laughs> yeah. in, printed in my mind telling me something negative, you know? So yeah. it's like our minds are so fickle and malleable by yeah. us in particular and kind of everyone. But I think for some people, it, don't you, or I'm asking you, I guess, mm. do you feel like things stick easier to our yeah. sort of temperament where other people, maybe that wouldn't be such a big deal? Yeah, I certainly think obsessiveness is kind of fixating on ideas for mm. better and for worse. And I also think, I mean, I was diagnosed when I went into this mental hospital with rejection sensitivity, which was duh. Mm. I, I, yeah, I don't we all have that? Yeah. After getting dumped. So yeah, I'd say I was sensitive. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> probably need to pay $400 for that diagnosis. <laughs> but I do think it's universal. I think everyone cares yeah. desperately what other people think about them. Yeah. But maybe the difference, as, as you, you said, is sort of other people are, it goes in and maybe they're able to let it go. Whereas someone like me and maybe you tend to kind of fixate yeah. on it and think about it and develop a story around it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of the the proverbial grain of sand that the, the oyster builds around. There's a tiny little thing, but, you know, over time, layers and layers accrete until you have this whole hard structure that yeah. is built around almost nothing. So what happened next? Jenny tells you that you're cute yeah. and you're at Brown. What are you studying? Did you know you wanted to be a comic? What no, you- I had no... My, Professional life is a is a succession of me being totally oblivious as to what what's obvious to everyone else. Uh, I can elaborate on that, but no, I should have been, but no, I wasn't any happier after that. I thought like it was is kind of crazy because it was sort of the it was like you know the cliche is like waking up from a nightmare where this horrible thing oh it's not actually true, but my life really wasn't any better. Mm-hmm. I was still very anxious. I wouldn't say I had OCD at that point and that body dysmorphic it really is remarkable it did after that night it lifted wow it wasn't like i loved looking at myself in the mirror but i accepted the fact that you were just like okay yeah that that i wasn't i wasn't terribly ugly and in fact that at least some people thought i was attractive so that lifted but my overall baseline happiness didn't really change i would get i was i would fixate on things generally would say i was obsessive i tended to ruminate it would Mm. probably be the best way to put it I could ruminate about perceived slights, social slights. I could ruminate about future fears, more future-oriented than past-oriented, which I think tends to be true of people with OCD. I think depression seems to be more of a Mm. fixating on the past, and anxiety and OCD tend to be more fixating on the future. Mm -hmm. What I was focused on wasn't comedy, but it was music. I'd started playing music fairly late. I was 15. And part of it was, I I loved music. Who doesn't love music? But part of it was this sort of calculation that, well, musicians get girls. So, I mean, Mick Jagger's lips were even bigger than mine. He seemed to do okay. So 
that was the answer. There was always a fixation, I'd say from a fairly early age, on finding some sort of answer, Mm -hmm. something that would kind of make everything perfect, fix everything. So this became the answer for me. Uh, Prior to that, I was actually lifting weights. I lifted weights pretty obsessively throughout high school. Mm. Part of it, I think, being that, all right, well, if I'm well-built, that'll distract from the lips. Part of it is just this kind of need to do something, to feel like I'm... And so then I transitioned into music, and I practiced really obsessively throughout high school and especially college, but I wasn't very good. I was, I think I had good, I was, uh, that was mostly jazz, and I think I had good ideas, but my technical execution wasn't, you know, you have to just have profound technical mastery mm-hmm. to be a great jazz pianist. And even my ideas, I think I was, I was somewhat inhibited by this sort of, am I doing it right? Yeah. You know, that's a very OCD thought. Am I doing it right? Mm. Is this the right way to do it? And it's hard to be free and creative in the moment when you have those sort of thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in jazz. Yeah. That's meant to be improvisational. Right. And it's group improv. So it's really, it's less about you. It's more about, you know, the jazz combo, a trio or quartet. It's listening, responding to the other people. That's the beauty of the form is this sort of shared conversation. But I was too concerned with, all right, am I, am I doing it right? Is, should I be playing this chord or this chord? Yeah. So all these little kind of harbingers or precursors of the OCD were there. What happens next then? So you, when are you really aware of the OCD and then when do you decide to be a comic? Yeah. So, well, so I graduated college um, and then I went to music school to get my master's in jazz studies when it became abundantly clear. There, there were four pianists in this jazz studies program and I was by far the worst. And meanwhile, someone told me that only two pianists in New York make a full-time living. And I was like, all right, this isn't going to work out. And I, I, it was a relief because I'd known for a while, but I had to cling to something because I needed something that I thought was going to save me or be an identity. That was a question that's always, from a very early age, vexed me as kind of this, who am I? And also a sort of need to be special in some way as a way to answer that question. Well, I'm a pianist or I'm a weightlifter or a writer. So... And certainly I'm not entirely free of that, uh, <laughs> that tendency today. And I imagine I never will be, but so letting it go was a relief because I knew it wasn't going to be a path for me. I wound up joining an internet startup with a friend. Did you move to New York? I, so I moved to, yes, yeah, so I was going to music school in Jersey. Then I moved to New York. It was the dot-com boom. I joined this internet startup. It was related to music, but I had no interest or passion in business Money is very abstract to me. And then that company, I had a falling out and I started my own company. I was good at raising money. I wasn't particularly good at running a company, but I kept that going for years. And it was in that period of time I started doing stand-up. And what happened then was I actually had um, still consumed by what am I doing with my life. So I first decided I was going to get my PhD in psychology. You'd asked earlier, that was my, my undergrad major, it was psychology. And I applied to programs I got in, I visited these schools and I was like, I don't know if I, five years and uh, I don't know about that. And then the next year I was like, well, I'm in business. I've been in business for years, let me get my MBA. And so I applied, got in, and I was coming back from an accepted students event. And it was just, I was so depressed because it was, it was at Columbia, I was taking the subway. And I was like, all these kids, they were really excited about going to business school because they're really, they love business. And I just don't care. And I was like, well, what am I doing with myself? And I got back to my apartment on 15th Street and I still had a keyboard under the bed and I pulled out and I started playing again. 
first time I'd played in many years. But now a lot of that sort of, I was playing more freely than I had before in composing. And I started looking around for people to play with, but all of the musicians I'd gone to school with were, didn't live in New York or they were successful. No one wanted to play with me. And I was getting a little frustrated. I was like, maybe I'll post something on Craigslist. Like, how do you find people to play with? And uh, at this, pretty much this exact moment, a friend brought me to a stand-up comedy show. I'd always loved stand-up. I'd never seen live stand-up comedy show. And it's <laughs> it's such an encapsulation of the, the beauty and the challenge of stand-up. Because the show I saw was at Parkside Lounge. There were some great comics, may or may not know who these people are, but Joe DeVito, Dimitri Martin, there were five or six comics, you know, four of them who are quite successful now. Uh, and there were six people in the audience. <laughs> and so that's kind of like a, that's often what it's like. But my reaction seeing it was this kind of can give me what I'm looking, because what I wanted from music was creating in the moment, but not doing it with other, doing it with other people. And comedy is that it's sort of the instrument is the instrument and the bandmates are, are the, the audience. audience. Yeah. Also my reaction, uh, I'm a little embarrassed to say this was, Oh, I'm funnier than these guys. <laughs> these guys are all brilliant. Yeah, by the way, like, Cause you don't really realize, or at least I didn't realize, you know, the craft that goes yeah, into it. Well, that's the test that they're good comedians. Right. Exactly. It's so it's transparent. It's invisible. They're just, yeah. it seems like they're just up there talking. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I'll say for myself is, when I decide I'm going to do something, you know, I throw myself into it. So yeah. that was the thing. And I threw myself into it. That was 2000 and 2006 was when I started doing open mics. Yeah, 2006. And so I started doing open mics. Then I started, I talk about this in the mushroom care. I started barking, handing out flyers yeah. in Times Square. Oh, the reason why I mentioned earlier, I said something how I should have been aware earlier. Years before when I was struggling with what am I doing with my life? You know, I'm in business, but I don't really like business. I took a career test. And this career test, it was based not on interest, but on aptitude. So it's a whole battery of kind of, you know, testing different skills and, and thought processes. And it was an at-home test. It was guided by, a, it was a CD. You played the CD and then you filled out these workbooks. And as I'm doing the test, I realized there's a flaw in the test design. Some of the exercises they tell you before you have eight minutes to complete this exercise. And so you pace yourself accordingly. Other exercises, they don't tell you this. So when I finished the test, it was like three or four hours, I send it in, but I send a note saying, basically, your test is flawed. Don't even bother scoring my test. Refund my money. This is an obvious <laughs> failure in your test design. And I got, <laughs> I can show it to you when we're done with this. I still have the results. And so I got my test results back. I tested in the top one percentile in two domains. Uh -huh. One was verbal fluency, you know, good at talking. Okay. And two is diagnostic reasoning which is basically breaking things down, finding fault in things, how things can... So it's like, be a comic, please. <laughs> so the, the, three, the top three career choices it gave me were college professor was three, lawyer was two, and number one was stand-up comic. <laughs> and this also came with a letter saying, your letter that you sent us is exactly the sort of letter we'd expect from someone who's 99% wow. in diagnostic reasoning. But even with this... I did not, nothing in my brain was like, oh, maybe I should do stand-up. It was years later. Did they give you your money back? No, no, they, uh, deservedly no. No, their test was clearly, yeah. well. I, yeah, their test was amazing. Yeah, their <laughs> test was great. I should pay more for it. Yeah. 
They should get a cut of all of your <laughs> yeah. stand-up. <laughs> it's called Pathfinder. So here, that's an endorsement. I feel like yeah. I'm leveling things like out karmically. Yeah, I think it's. I, I think it was a fairly well-known, but yeah, I still have the letter and the, the test results. Yeah. So yeah, in hindsight, I'm like, why didn't I gravitate to stand-up earlier? I love words. I love wordplay language um i i love humor yeah but you know maybe it was because it wasn't you know a lot of comics there was someone in their family who had some sort of performing arts background it just wasn't i didn't know any comedians but still, yeah. i lived in new york like i don't know yeah for whatever reason that was so my path find your way into comedy and how is your mental health at this point are you aware of your ocd are you in therapy like does it really start at this time it started a little bit before. So I was in, and you know some of this from seeing The Mushroom Cure. Mm-hmm. So I had a relationship, very significant romantic relationship. We wound up living together for about two and a half years. And that relationship ended. And it ended because I was increasingly, there were a lot of reasons, but ultimately, I mean, it was down to me. I was struggling more and more with obsessiveness rigidity for example our downstairs neighbor would sometimes play music not even loud but you could hear it but i would fixate on it and my girlfriend she knew that if she came home from work and we were planning like a fun night together and our neighbor was playing music the, the night was ruined i'd also develop terrible insomnia if i didn't sleep her it was you know it was really i was getting more and more deeply trapped in my own sort of ruminations and fixations and that was very difficult for you know someone else especially when you're living in a 400 square foot (laughs) apartment and i was i guess on my part it was also a question of well the ocd hadn't manifested yet but there was a question of how is this the person i ultimately want to commit to so that relationship ended and i didn't make the connection at the time But prior to that, so my OCD primarily revolves around decision-making, making making a decision, feeling I made the wrong decision, reversing the decision. And I didn't have that at all, not even a little bit. And I know this because the sort of big, scary New York City decision when moving to a new apartment, I moved constantly. My game was I would find sublets, you know, that would be like nicer than I could afford, but it's ordinarily, but because it's a sublet, it's cheap, but it's only for six months. I moved... My first five years in New York, I must have moved six or seven times. And there was never anxiety about it. It was like, oh, this place looks good. I'll take it. No difficulty making decisions. But very soon after this relationship ended, I started having trouble deciding what to wear. There was a logic behind it. You know, well, I've just lost this relationship. But, you know, my sort of analyzing brain was like, well, we can fix this. Let's just find someone else. But you have to look good. So what's the right shirt? And it very, very quickly, like over the course of a few months, it just spiraled until every decision was agonizing what side of the street to walk down, what subway to take, what to eat, you know, what time to set my alarm. And there are so many decisions yeah. in life. <laughs> it's, it's all decisions. Yeah. So now you know that this is this is an issue, and I guess this brings us up to the mushroom cure and kind yeah. of the content of this. But let's, you have this thing I think it's a bit that you have talked about before of how OCD is this mental illness that is misunderstood and mm. idealized and and laughed at. Yeah, I think, well, to bring it up to speed, so I didn't, so this started happening after this relationship. I didn't know what was going on. 
But this is, this is to your point about so much depends on kind of finding the right therapist and also that therapist orientation. I was seeing a therapist for insomnia and this therapist happened to be an OCD specialist. And in fact, the way he treated my insomnia, which I've never heard anyone doing this, but it worked this way for me is I came in and he said, you know, it seems like the issue is that you're obsessing about sleep. You're obsessing. Am I going to sleep? And that's causing anxiety, which is making you not sleep. So he actually treated my insomnia as though it were OCD by doing exposures. And it worked. It cured my insomnia completely. It took a while. And once that resolved, he then said, you know, I think your OCD runs a lot deeper than that. I think he said, I haven't seen this specific manifestation before with decision-making, but the longer we see each other, it fits the pattern exactly. You're engaging in a behavior to avoid anxiety. That behavior creates more anxiety. You engage in the behavior more. It's the same as a hand washer, or a stove checker, or anything like that. So he kind of gives you a name for it. Yeah. And yeah, go back to OCD though and how you know it's perceived by the world. And you're oh yeah, about- yeah. So I think I don't know exactly what bit you're referring to, but I in general, you know, people will talk about when I sometimes in, in stand up, you know, I have this this silly little thing where I say, you know, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, if you have, if you have OCD, raise your hand six times. And often in comedy clubs, someone will raise their hands and I'll usually interrogate them, you know, gently at first, but what's your form of OCD? And 90% of the time it's something like, Oh, you know, it really bothers me if my place is dirty. Yeah. I'm, I'm really organized. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, Oh, that's, that must be horrible for you. How do you, you're so brave coming out tonight. (laughs) And it is this, there is Socially this, accepted. Yeah. Like, people, almost applauded. Oh, I mean, this is, this yeah. Also, I have a joke where I say, you know, this is, I don't know if this is true, I mean, if they're still in business, but there was a place in Midtown called uh, OCD Cleaners, you know, and the idea that, you know, you wouldn't do that with any other mental illness. There's no bipolar cleaners. And this then there's a little act out, which I'm, 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 I'll spare your podcast listeners. But it's true. It's, it really is trivialized in a way that other mental illnesses aren't. And seen as, I mean, no, no one would take a perverse pride in saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really schizophrenic or I'm a little bit schizophrenic. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like anxiety is almost becoming that now in a different way of like everyone saying how anxious they are and in a way that it's almost pulling away the, the, like, do we even know what that means anymore of like, you know, I think depression kind of gets that too of like it's raining and you know, it's a different thing than like if someone's depressed, Yeah, but I don't know. It's mental illness and the way we talk about it in general is, is complicated. I think maybe you can talk about that a little bit of, of how I think you look at it as patterning. We'll take an intermission from your story. Sure. I think what you mean is like, so this whole idea, I view OCD kind of as an addiction is that, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I also view it as, and this is not a view that's widely shared by mental health professionals, but I think there's a payoff for OCD. So for me, what I find is, I'm trying to think of an example, and because the OCD really has been much, much better, but let me think, to keep it generic, let's say I make a decision. So I'll be just debating between two alternatives. Should I go on this trip or should I not go on this trip? And, and there'll be building anxiety and I'll finally make a decision. And there'll be a little bit of relief. Okay, it's over. I've made a decision. I'll feel good for a little bit. But then I'll start to feel anxious. And then this is really where the trap is sprung. I'll start thinking about it more. I'll go back into the thought process as a way of, I think what I'm looking for is to try to 
either reassure myself I've made the right decision, like just a little bit basic, but really what I'm looking for is that feeling of relief I got. I'm trying to get that feeling back. I want to get that good feeling. It's a little bit of a high. It's dopamine, yeah. Yeah. So it's this anxiolytic kind of relief. And so I go back in and I'm trying to, but the the paradox is the more I go back in and think about it, the more anxious I get. And now the more I need that dopamine hit. And so finally, the way to get it is if I reverse my decision, I'll actually, when I reverse the decision, I'll be like, oh, that will feel good for a little bit. Because what happens is once I spend so much time thinking about the pros and cons, the problem is whatever option I choose, I'm very aware of the downsides of that option because I've thought so much about them. And now that I've committed to that, those downsides suddenly see a, seem a lot more important. And the downsides of the option I didn't choose, they don't seem that bad now. It's kind of like the grass is greener thing. So I reverse and I'll feel momentary relief. Oh yeah, this is a better choice. But then I'll start feeling that anxiety again. Well, but no, no, these downsides are pretty big. And wait, and I chose this one first for a reason. That was my first yeah. impulse. I should go back to it. But yeah. I've already reversed once. I shouldn't reverse again. And, and then you're hard on yourself. I mean, I do this yeah. 20 times a day. Yeah. You're hard on yourself that you've taken so much time. It's such a complicated wormhole. The problem, I think, is OCD is both a cause and an effect of anxiety. The more you engage in OCD, the more anxious you get. And the more anxious you get, the more you have an incentive mm -hmm. to engage in OCD because it does, at least for me, there is momentary relief. Yeah. Let's talk about psychedelics and how they helped yeah. you heal because I think that's kind of where we are in this, in yeah. your story. of So you, you've gone through that breakup, you're doing comedy, you're kind of early, I think, in your yeah, comedy yeah, career was, yeah, at that yeah, time quite early yeah and yeah. you this is almost the same time as when and this is really ocd is really rough for you yeah. at this point and very just isolated and just didn't really know what was happening and because i was still running my own company it was kind of a it was a mixed blessing i think if i had a normal job i was probably at a point where i would not have been able to hold down that job which maybe would have been a wake-up call but I had the situation where it was my company and I could kind of, so I was very, yeah, it I was also very also causes sick. more decisions because Absolutely. you, when you, it, it might've, maybe the structure of a job would have helped in some yeah, way. Definitely, yeah, definitely. I mean, I found that I've had, I've had day jobs since then. And certainly, I mean, now where I, I'm very lucky that I don't have to have a day job, but there is an awareness that, yeah, having that whole stretch of a day where I'm just accountable to myself is a lot of pressure. A lot of decisions. Yeah, a lot of decisions. Yeah. Absolutely. So you're you're starting comedy. You're really at your wits' end, and you start researching. I believe. Yeah, because I tried everything. Because yeah. So I'd been on all these medications anyway for depression. So I, I should say I'd been medicated continuously from age eighteen, fairly high doses of different SSRIs. And so now that I had this OCD diagnosis, we kind of upped the dosages because the the dosages tend to be higher for OCD than depression, and nothing was helping. I was meditating. I was trying a lot of different things and just nothing was helping. And then I found this study where it was a small pilot study, just nine subjects, and they gave them psilocybin, the, the main active compound in psychedelic mushrooms. And it seemed to be very effective. I say seemed because it was a small short-term study, but everyone had a significant remission. And one subject in the study, they informally followed up with for six months and he was symptom free. So they didn't use the word cure in this study, but when I read that, it looked like this person was cured. And I had very little psychedelic experience at that time. I had done mushrooms once in college and I'd done LSD a few times. The mushrooms had somewhat worked. The LSD hadn't probably because I was on these SSRIs. But when I read that study, even though I, it wasn't something I had had a 
huge desire to do, it was like, all right, well, I'm going to try this. Yeah. yeah. I've tried everything. Yeah. I'll try Why this. Not? That's kind of the content of the show, which. Yeah. Which that's people, sort of where the show starts out. Exactly. Yeah, we're, yeah. Which people should see. Maybe just for people listening, yeah. kind of summarize without too much of a spoiler in case people see it, but just kind of in general of your story, wh- what that experience was like with psychedelics and how they were so helpful for you. So I read this study and it was surprisingly difficult to find psychedelics at that point in New York. As I say in the show, there was this weird post Burning Man mushroom drought happening. <laughs> no one could get mushrooms. And, you know, kind of the OCD fixation, people had LSD, they had, you know, ecstasy, but I was like, no, I need and mushrooms. And you were like, this is your yeah. savior. Right. Yeah. I, exactly. It was you that same decided. sort of thing. This yeah. was the thing that was going to save me. And it really did become more than just a way to cure the OCD, but it did become, well, this is the thing that is going to save me. This is going to answer my existential questions, my identity questions. And so I then, while I was handing out flyers for a comedy club in Times Square, I met this woman who we developed a relationship. And then I later learned she had basically cured her clinical depression with psychedelics unintentionally. And she was a psychologist and I sort of became her unofficial research subject. Mm-hmm. And yeah, without giving too much away, psychedelics were helpful in a couple of ways for me. One way, probably the biggest way is, so OCD is about control. And let me take a step back. So that's therapist who had diagnosed me with OCD. And I was still seeing was, a, he was a great therapist. He was gifted. He was committed. The, uh, the lips are, uh, <laughs> lips need a lot of... <laughs> Um, a lot of surface area uh, <laughs> for the listeners i just applied some chapstick yeah <laughs> uh, which i often do to my hideously monstrously large lips so this therapist he was working in a paradigm i mean it's cbt but it's specifically called act acceptance and commitment therapy a form of cbd but the general idea is i think with probably with most cbt and particularly for ocd I was engaging this behavior to avoid unwanted thoughts and emotions. So basically the unwanted thought was I've made a mistake or I'm doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. That thought provoked a great deal of anxiety, just a physical sensation in my body that I didn't want to feel. And so in an attempt to avoid that, I would reverse my decision. The problem, as we discussed, is that that creates more anxiety and it feeds on itself. So This therapist impressed upon me the idea that if you can just sit with the anxiety and the thoughts and and stick with your decision, don't engage in this compulsive behavior, it'll pass. So the key, he always emphasized, is surrender. Allow it to be there. Even welcome it. Welcome your brain telling you you're doing it wrong. Welcome your brain telling you you've made a terrible mistake. Welcome those sensations of anxiety in your body. So I understood intellectually that if I could do that, I would feel the break feeling. the cycle. Yeah. He's essentially saying be present. Yeah. You feel the feeling in your body. Yeah. Yeah. I to interrupt you quickly, yeah. but don't forget what you're gonna say. Yeah. I think maybe I told you this, but my I've had an eating disorder mm-hmm. and like really been in recovery for that. And that's a lot where yeah. my anxiety goes still, it kind of pools there. And I had a mentor early on in that. I would really, and I still do sometimes, like really obsessed with counting calories mm. and counting what I ate. And that's like where I go when I don't want to feel or I want to yeah. like leave. Yeah. And she gave me this thing where I was just like, I can't not do it. Like I know how many calories are in that banana. And I know, like I know, yeah. I can't not know that, yeah. you know? And she was like, okay, when you're doing that, it kind of reminds me with what you're talking about. Don't 
allow the count to get to the end, like because mm. that's when you get the hit of dopamine, huh. which is like and the hit of dopamine is judging yourself. Uh-huh. It's like judging yourself of like that is enough or not enough, or that is good or that is bad. And if you don't calculate the number, then you won't know, and so then you'll just like eventually stop doing it. And that has worked for periods really? of time. And then I'll like go back to it and I'll remember again. But I don't totally understand though. So you're saying I'm curious about this. Yeah. That so you know a banana has uh, let's say 200 calories i don't know what it is right and so you'd start so you'd say okay i had a banana and i had this so i'm up to 472 calories so yeah. you'd stop yourself they'd say i'm not going to add in the uh, or like at the end of the day okay. i wouldn't i would be like okay so in the morning i had this apple and then i had this mm. and then i had this and then I had this and then yeah. at the moment i have awareness of like this is not a helpful choice for me yeah. to do and the only reason i'm doing it is to ju- give myself a rating for the day or to oh, judge I myself see. Yeah, so just yeah. don't if I stop at, at 3 p.m., it's like, well, I don't know. Yeah. So I can stop. And I'm not going to get the hit of, I'm not going to get the data. So yeah. I'm not going to get the judgment. Yeah. So I'm not going to get the dopamine. So I'll like eventually it'll lose You'll its. habituate off yeah. of it. Or, yeah. So it's kind of the, and it's kind of the same thing for, for decisions. Yeah. Of like if I, if it's, it's essentially like surrendering to it and like feeling the feeling. Like yeah. we do these things to distract ourselves. You know, they're all coping mechanisms to, we don't want to feel feelings we don't want to feel. So yeah. we turn to, obsessing about decisions or return to work or we start right. turn to counting calories or return to our phones or you know a whole slew of things but it's all to not like surrender to our feelings yeah and i think that's sort of for me sort of the meta story with the ocd that only became apparent to me much later was ultimately what had happened was i had a terrible heartbreak so there were there was sensations in my chest that i did not want to feel yeah and so I just kind of went up into my head and was like, well, if I just make the right decision in every moment of You're my like life, I want to feel it. Yeah. yeah. I really disidentified from my body and went into my head. Yeah. And it's been a long road, even apart from the OCD, Yeah, getting back there. Psychedelics have helped. Dance has helped a lot. Other physical mm-hmm. practices. So I understood this idea, exactly what you're saying, where it's kind of, if I can surrender to this anxiety, then it will free me from the need to engage in this compulsive behavior. An analogy I sometimes use is like, if someone broke into my house and was like, I'm gonna punch you in the face, Adam. This is a weird analogy, but just go with it. I'd be like bobbing and weaving and running around and trying to avoid getting punched in the face. But once they finally corner me and punch me in the face, it's over, over, right? So it hurts, my nose is bleeding, it doesn't feel great, but at least I'm not frantically running around. And I understood this at the time, but the thing about acceptance or surrender, yeah, I'll go with surrender. It's it's not an intellectual thing. It's really, to me, more of a visceral thing or, you know, a spiritual thing. It's that leap. It's that letting go. So you can understand it, but that doesn't, that really does nothing for you. It's really that willingness to. Yeah. Yeah. I wish it was something that's like, oh. It just clicks. Yeah. But it's like you have to do it again and again and again. I heard you tell on Duncan's podcast about an experience you had when you were in Peru about how these dogs, which is essentially the same oh, story yeah, yeah. you told yeah. with the with the getting punched in the face, but these dogs were there to attack poisonous snakes. Right. And you realize that all day long, I'm like telling your story. Yeah, but, yeah I like it. But it, I think it works. <laughs> these dogs, their only purpose or their only job was to attack these poisonous snakes. But most of the time there weren't poisonous snakes yeah. and they were just resting and hanging out and having a good time. They weren't worried about the poisonous right. snake coming. And so you really saw that as an analogy of we have all these 
poisonous snakes that are a potential, but we worry about them instead of just resting and not and not worrying about them. And so you like labeled your poisonous snakes as ghost snakes, yeah. I think. And I thought that was so helpful. Cool. And I like I think that everyone can take that away from this conversation of, you know, if they take one thing away of like, look at what your ghost snakes are of, you know, the future, yeah. the past, or obsessing. Is this person mad at me? Like that's another thing yep. where my OCD comes oh, in yeah, a yeah. lot yeah. of like I've Aren't gotten better about that one. Yeah. But, but that's every like three times with my therapist is like, I think this person is mad at me. <laughs> and then me. I ca- and then right. I come back and I'm like, so she texted me, everything was fine. Like, yeah. You know, and the thing is, it's like everybody's in their mind thinking somebody else is mad at them. So nobody really cares. Right. You know? Like nobody's <laughs> thinking I'm ugly because they're worried that they're ugly. Right. It's like nobody's caring about my shirt because they've changed four times. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that was the Peru thing was just to elaborate a little bit, yeah. it was it was this realization that you laid it out perfectly. They have these dogs. Really, they have the dogs because they like having dogs around. It's a big property in the middle of the jungle, but they're ostensible purposes if, unfortunately, due to deforestation, there, I don't think there's a lot of big fauna like jaguars anymore, at least not in that part of Peru, but there are snakes. And so if a snake comes out, the dogs are supposed to pounce on it. But yeah, what I realized is these snakes, they're, like you said, they're not concerned. They're not thinking about it. But the other part that I wanted to add in there is also if a snake materializes, they trust, I suppose, or, you know, they'll deal with it however they deal with in the moment. Whereas I'm constantly strategizing, what am I going to do when this snake comes out of the bushes, this snake of me not getting this career opportunity I Mm -hmm. want, or this financial hardship, or this relationship not working out. The irony is by strategizing my responses, it's making me less effective because then when the, when that snake does come out, if it comes out, which most of them don't, I'm going to be working off of a script in my brain rather than fully engaging with the reality of the moment. Mm-hmm. Like I may in my brain, the snake may have come out of this bush, but in reality, it comes out of this bush. In my brain, it was like, You're oh. having to do the work devil. And it makes you less effective when it actually yeah. happens. And you're feeling the anxiety devil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And But the biggest point is that 95% of the time, those snakes, they don't exist, which is why I started calling them ghost snakes. Because yeah, it's not even a real snake. It's a ghost. My, my mind has conjured this imaginary snake. Yeah. Being on my mat in the jungle of Peru, no internet, nothing. Uh, actually, there was actually internet at this place. In the, but anyway, in the, in the <laughs> Maloka where you're, where you're taking ayahuasca, this there's no internet. But being being disconnected, one thing I realized is, well, when there's no actual threats or concerns, my mind then starts to go off into what could potentially happen. Yeah. It's Finds like my them. mind is like, well, we have to utilize this time productively. Yeah. So let's figure out every possible thing that could go wrong yeah. from now till the end of time. The mind and strategize. has to work. It wants yeah. to start working. I just that's had what it that. Does. Yeah. And thank God for that. I mean, it serves a necessary evolutionary purpose. I wouldn't be here if my mind, none of us would be, if our minds were not good at identifying and avoiding threats. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of times when that's not productive and it's yeah. counterproductive. How did psychedelics help with this? Yeah. So coming back to this pattern. So mm-hmm. I understood that if I could accept the anxiety would free me from engaging in this compulsive behavior. But again, accept, I understood that intellectually and I meditated. I meditated obsessively actually for years, but that didn't get me there. This whole acceptance surrender piece. So it was under the influence of psychedelics that I first had the experience of acceptance at a visceral body level. The first time it happened actually was not far from here. I was at my brother's apartment in Brooklyn and I was there with Grace, the woman who's in my show. Did she see the show? 
No, um, no, no, she's not seeing the show. Okay. We're not in touch. That was my yeah. other question. Yeah, no, no, so it's, a, it's a good question. Yeah, yeah, it's a tricky one. Does she know about the show? I don't know. When things ended, I reached out to her a few times and she didn't respond, mm. like more than a few times. I reached out to her over the course of two years, probably reached out to her eight times mm -hmm. and without a response. So I eventually was like, okay, she yeah. doesn't want me in her life, which made me realize other things about the relationship, specifically that maybe I'd hurt her more than I realized. Mm. And so I was like, I'm going to respect that. Yeah. But it is a little bit of a conundrum where I have a show where she has a major role. Yeah. She's like the other character. <laughs> yeah. So I, more recently I've been like, should I reach out to her again? Is that disrespectful? I mean, if she Googles me, she'll find out about the show, but she's also the sort of person who like, she's not on any social media or anything. Yeah. I could see her being like, I'm not going to Google this guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I've thought about that one. Yeah. yeah. That's I should drop her an email. I, anyway, she. Well, if you're listening. Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would like to be in touch with her. I'd like to know how she's doing because yeah. she, she's not on social media. So there's really nothing yeah. well, about maybe her. Maybe this will be a sleepless in Seattle moment. <laughs> right. <and> right. <laughs> we'll hear. Okay. But go on. So you were saying. Oh, so I was in my brother's apartment yep. in Brooklyn and we'd taken LSD. It was actually the first time I think I took LSD. I mean, other than college when it hadn't worked. And you were off all of medications at Yeah, this time. so I had to. So when I first met this woman, I, I started using psychedelics. They didn't work because I was on high-dose SSRIs, and I got off of them slowly, tapered off Because of you wanted to use psychedelics. And I wanted to. SSRIs, you know, if you look at the data, they're not helpful for most people. Having said that, they are for some people. So whenever I speak about this publicly... I'm very, if it helps you, yeah. stay on it. If it doesn't help you, still stay on it until you have a path to get off it because withdrawal is a bitch with this stuff. Yeah. So I had gotten off once and it was really difficult, but then things did get a little worse. So I got back on. So I wanted to get off again. And this was sort of the, the final mm -hmm. incentive for doing that. So I'm in my brother's apartment and we got in there because it was very quiet and I'm lying in bed and I'm coming up on the LSD and I'm really kind of just trying, I'm starting to feel like these pretty blissful physical sensations and kind of relaxing into them. I'm feeling like, oh, I'm getting close to something. I'm getting close to, maybe this will be the thing that mm -hmm. does it. And then suddenly there's this huge commotion from downstairs. It turns out people were moving into the apartment downstairs and immediately my body tensed up. There was this sort of anger reaction, like mm -hmm. this shouldn't be happening. And then I became aware that this was happening. I suddenly saw, because it was such a quick shift where this noise happening, my body tensing up, I sudden I, I was able to see very clearly that almost visualize it. Like I was, you know, it's hard to use language sometimes with psychedelics, but I had, I was able to perceive what was happening, this sort of aggressive fight response in my body kicking in with this noise. Mm -hmm. And I was able to see that I'd gone from a very blissful, peaceful state to a very dysphoric, angry state. And that all that had really changed was, I mean, yeah, there were these sounds that I didn't want there. But so what I did is I was like, well, let me try to relax into the sounds. Mm -hmm. And the metaphor that occurred to me at that moment when I was on LSD was getting into a bath where the water's a little bit too warm. It's almost uncomfortably warm, but you kind of get in. And then sort of relax into get it. Get used to it. Yeah. And so it's like, let me just kind of bathe myself in these sounds that I don't want to be there. 
And it was really a moment of surrender. I just allowed them to be there. And I still didn't want them to be there. But once I allowed them to be there, they weren't dominating my yeah. experience. It was like, all right, every you know 30 seconds, there's a loud clatter. But meanwhile, there's beautiful sunlight streaming in and I can feel my my body and the breeze. And it was yeah. just one relatively small note in my experience by surrendering versus it being the whole of my experience. Yeah. It's like what we resist yeah. persists. Yeah. And after that experience, for the next three days, I was kind of able to do that with the OCD, but then it kind of crept back in. But that was the first taste of surrender. Yeah. And so then- this is kind of the content of the show, but then you end up doing more psychedelics. Yes, more, many, <laughs> many more psychedelics. So I went, I, I went off the deep end a little bit. You know, I approached yeah. it as an obsessive person, right. hell bent on a goal, which is precisely the wrong way to approach psychedelics. Totally. It was, it became a means to an end, and it was like, if I can find the right drug and the right dose and the right setting, I'll get the right experience, and my life will be perfect. Yeah, I went down that rabbit hole, but that lesson, if I'm going to put it in sort of a stilled version, I think that was that was one of the main values of psychedelics is having the physical body experience of surrender and acceptance and gradually learning how to do that when I wasn't tripping. Mm -hmm. That was a key change for me. Yeah. And then the other part I'd say was this sort of connection to or an openness to really it's it's humility, being humbled. The psychedelic experience is profoundly humbling because you realize that you're not in control. There are things a lot more powerful than us, even if it's just a molecule, whether that molecule is intelligent or divine is another subject. But at the very least, if you take a high dose of mushrooms or 5-MeO-DMT or anything, really, you know, you see, I'm not in control here. Yeah. And also, though, there's a sense, at least for me with psychedelic experience, that there's something. Mm -hmm. I can't say what that is, but it does feel like there's some intelligence, some flow, some order. And so that helps with the surrender too. Yeah. What would you say, would you recommend psychedelics to someone with anxiety, with OCD, with issues of being a person in the world and feeling okay with depression? What would you, mean, you like humans? Yeah. <laughs> to humans? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah how, no, I, how would you, I mean, obviously you have this show called The Mushroom Cure yeah. that's out in the world. And so you've been talking about this. What would you say to someone? So I, ha there, I have two impulses on how to answer this question, talking about decisions, but I'll, I'll go for both of them. Great. <laughs> so one impulse is to, is to give the standard caveat, you know, use caution. This isn't for everyone. This is, and that absolutely that's true. But the other is to say, I think, I actually think this is or was designed. That's a tricky word, design, because it implies a designer. But let me put it another way. I think humans co-evolved with psychedelics. And I don't think that's coincidental. I think in our early evolutionary history, psychedelics conferred certain adaptive advantages. And we can talk more about this. What do you mean by that? So there's, are you familiar with Terrence McKenna and his sort of mm -hmm. stone ape theory? So his theory is- that, I don't know that theory. I'll go real, real quickly. So at low doses, psychedelics help with visual acuity. You see better. They also help with peripheral arousal, including genital arousal. So you'll presumably have sex more. Uh -huh. Both very adaptive when you're hunting, you need the eyesight. And when, you know, infant mortality rate is like whatever, 90%, the more you reproduce, the yeah. more likely your genes are to, to propagate. And I think that's that may be true. It's a cool speculative theory. Yeah, There's no way to prove it. It, it. it has been established, though, that they do have these physiological effects. But I also think, I mean, the fruits of the psychedelic experience are generally empathy and realizing that greater identification with 
others and less exclusive identification with identification with the self. And if you think about, you know, when we're living in these very early, healthy thing, <laughs> very healthy for everyone. And especially yeah. if you're in a small tribal society, the best way to ensure the survival of the species is engaging in pro-social behaviors that may not help your own immediate survival, sacrifice, altruism, stuff like that. So if you're more identified with your whole tribe, mm -hmm. that's going to increase everyone's. Makes so much yeah. sense. Yeah. But also I just look at the fact every damn culture and society has used psychedelics. Michael Pollan in his book, he points out the only exception to this is the Inuits. But I wonder if the reason they've been able to get, and so let me take a step back. So mm -hmm. I think with that, if everyone's used psychedelics, that to me implies either one, that societies and civilizations that didn't use psychedelics didn't survive, or two, it's kind of the other side of the same coin, that they have so much adaptive value that, yeah, it's just an essential part. And even the Inuits, I wonder, you know, you're living in this incredibly harsh, desolate, but beautiful environment. There's something almost psychedelic about that anyway. Right. You're connected <laughs> totally. to nature. You're connected. That gives you the humility anyway if yeah, you're living, you know. Yeah, I think the advantages of empathy, of yeah. connection, of all that, I think we evolved to have these experiences, these mystical experiences. I don't think humans were meant to live in this sort of existential vacuum that we now live in. Yeah. And it's only been relatively recently that we've been so divorced from psychedelics. And I think we're paying a very high price societally. I don't want to say, do I think they're the cure for all society's ills? No, but I think if I could prescribe one thing that I think will right the ship, it would be widespread use of psychedelics. But the caveat comes in with the fact that we don't have structures for this now mm -hmm. in our society. So there's a lot of people who would could have damaging psychedelic experiences because they don't have the support systems and because they've ironically because they've grown up in a society that doesn't have these values that psychedelics confer they've been damaged to a point that now those experiences could be harmful yeah but i really do believe that in an ideal society almost everyone would be using psychedelics in an intelligent way at a fairly early age 16 18 yeah, yeah. michael pollan's book is is great for going into these sorts yeah. of things and even his episode on fresh air like will kind of give you the gist of a lot of this this stuff and at the show that i attended of yours there was a talk back after with this organization maps oh yeah can you talk about them and and what they do and i learned through that night you talked about how there's been a 40-year blackout on studying them is yeah. that right I mean, it's can been you, over for a bit, but yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about that yeah. and, and first maybe address MAPS? MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. They've done hands down more than any other organization to, to get this stuff into the conversation, not just in the public, but in the medical field. They were founded over 30 years ago by, by Rick Doblin and founded shortly after ecstasy. MDMA was made illegal. And their mission has been making psychedelic medicines available, making psychedelics available. But their mission, and I admire the fact that they're pretty open about this, is ultimately they feel like psychedelics should be available to, you know, healthy normals, to use the, the medical mm -hmm. term. So they, they've spearheaded a lot of the research. They fund a lot of the research. And their main focus in recent years has been MDMA, commonly known as ecstasy, for PTSD. And they're now entering phase three clinical trials. And that's the final phase before FDA approval. 
So if all goes according to plan, the FDA will approve MDMA as a therapy for PTSD probably in 2021. It'll also be available to people without PTSD under a program called expanded access, which basically once a medicine is legal for one condition, if it has unique value, other people can get access who may not have that condition but can benefit in other ways. Is my layperson's understanding of how this works. So that's one priority. And I think at the talk back that I was at, he talked about how marijuana is also another priority for them. It's a less of a priority. They've really been focusing, but yes, they've also been doing some studies on marijuana for PTSD. The difference is the MDMA is really geared towards, they shy away from the word cure, but well, I'll just tell you the results. So these MDMA, the MDMA work, they're working, they work primarily with military veterans, Mm -hmm. first responders, and victims of uh, sexual assault. And these were people who had treatment-resistant PTSD. They had failed multiple other treatments for PTSD, and they were horribly impaired. People who couldn't hold down a job, couldn't leave their houses. And two-thirds of people, actually more than two-thirds of people who engaged in this work with MAPS, with MDMA, after they no longer qualified for a PTSD diagnosis. So it's not like they were better. They did not have PTSD anymore, which is unheard of. And the the protocol was they simply did one to three sessions with MDMA. And it's I should emphasize it's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So it's not you're not just taking the drug alone at home. It's with a therapist. Right. Which I think is great. And that's what Michael Pollan talks about in his yeah. book with with psychedelics and with using mushrooms in a therapeutic setting where he's with a he's guided by a therapist who kind of acts like a shaman who's like there with yeah. him through the process. And I think that's so wonderful. And some of these things are happening now in like an underground way. And I want to ask you about this. It's like, is that something that MAPS is is working on? Is that a goal? Because I don't know if you remember, but I raised my hand during the talk back and I was like, what would you say to me? Who's like, I've never done psychedelics. Like I've barely done any drugs ever. But as soon as I saw your show, I was like, where do I sign up? How do I do this? But how do I do it in a safe way where I don't have like a bad trip or I don't freak out? Or it sounds really nice to do it in the Michael Pot. I think I had like just become aware of his book also the week that I saw your show. Uh And so it was just like mushrooms were kind of like, yeah coming to me in all these different ways and like how I want that therapeutic setting where I can just like sign up to do this with a therapist and and take mushrooms and have this experience and have my anxiety. It's all, all yeah. clear as well, right. but in this very controlled way, you know? So yeah, is MAPS working on that? How far away do you think we are from that experience? The experience of meaning more therapists? For- yeah, like destigmatized therapists for it, legalized, uh, all yeah. those sorts of things. So in terms of legalizing, so MDMA, that'll be the first one. Then psilocybin will be the second one. That'll be a few years further down the line. That'll probably initially be legalized for depression. One issue is access. So it will be that sort of thing where you can go in and see a therapist, but there'll probably be, there'll be a lot of demand and not a huge amount of supply. There is also the underground therapist route, which I've, I've done myself. And I think that has a lot of value. And we're in this sort of area right now where Thanks largely to Michael's book. There's a lot of interest in these those people. No one's been prosecuted to my knowledge, but it is, you know, these are, they typically are therapists. So they typically have certification as therapists. So they're risking their licenses there. Yeah. I was talking to one and she was like, we need, let's not email about this. Let's right. Talk or on the WhatsApp. Signal or, yeah. yeah. There's like, Whoa. Yeah, this, this whole, it's this whole world. So the short answer is quickly. I mean, this is happening really quickly in terms of full legal Great. status. My fear 
Well, Jeff Sessions was, he was a little scary, you know, saying good people don't do marijuana. But I think what's happening now, so the fear is that something happens and and there's this research is cut off because as you mentioned, there was essentially no research from what, I guess from 69 to for roughly 40 years. There are a few exceptions. And there was zero research whatsoever from, I'm going to say maybe 78 to 2004 or five of the first really DMT study. Time. So zero. So yeah. And you have to understand, this was the most promising area of psychiatry for a decade. There were 3,000 peer-reviewed studies published, I think, uh, over a 15-year period for LSD, mushrooms, mescaline. This stuff was incredibly promising. And then it was just cut off completely. So there's a little fear that something that could happen because, you know, luckily there haven't been any significant adverse events yet. But if you you know, if yeah. enough people take this stuff, I mean, there's significant adverse events with Advil. If someone has an agenda and wants to shut this stuff down, there's going to be, there will inevitably be a time where someone is, something bad is going to happen to yeah. someone in a psych, psychedelic research study or psychedelic therapy. But I'm not too worried because for two reasons. One, there's an increasing recognition that accepted medications, they don't work for most people very well. Two, there's a real... Maybe it's social media. There's more. There's a desperation. I think that is maybe more articulated now. Yeah, it's like what I was saying about anxiety. Like, if yeah, you really exactly. use that word, I hear it like eight times a day. Yeah, like even two years ago, I I don't think I yeah. did in the same way. And so I think there's Michael Pollan. I think did a great deal of good with that book. It's mm -hmm. there's been some criticisms, which I think are mostly not not well-founded, but either way. Has he seen your show? Have you met yeah, him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he saw it in Berkeley. He's actually been very, very supportive. That's I, really cool. Yeah. He's, he's my, he, then he met my parents oh, randomly in Boston. And then I was home for Thanksgiving. And Is that where he lives? He lives in Berkeley, but he was at Harvard oh, okay. teaching and I knew he was there. And, and I didn't have any friends in town like the last couple of days. And I was like, oh, Michael Pollan's in town. So we, we actually had lunch. Oh, that's great. And yeah, he's, he's, he's great. I, I have a great deal of uh, respect and, and affection for him. Yeah. But that aside, he's done a great deal of good because he had, prior to him, everyone really speaking out for psychedelics. Well, that was the problem is they were speaking out for psychedelics. They're clearly mm, advocates. Yep. Michael, you know, didn't have a, whatever the expression, neutral. dog in that race, you yeah, know, he yeah. was coming in as an inquisitive journalist. Yeah. Who people respected yes, for something who completely different. had a lot of different. credibility. Yeah. Like I was like, I really like his work on food. What does he have to say on this? I'm right, probably exactly. going to like that too. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to overestimate, I think, how helpful that's been, the credibility yeah. from someone like that coming out. And the book is, it's a great book. I mean, it's, it's a great book. And he's book. a good writer. He's, yeah. He made it. Yeah. And he approaches it in this way of kind of a skeptical but open-minded person who comes out with, I think, ultimately a very positive view, but but not too positive, saying, yeah, yep. we need more research. There are there are risks, but you know, this is this is powerful and yeah. potentially revolutionary. So I think the combination of that, the just realization that, I mean, it's also just spiritual institutions failing. I mean, today, front page of the Times, you know, this priest still giving mass after being, it's, yeah. and, I, and I'll actually trace that back to psychedelics too. I think the basis of most, if not all religions, probably including Christianity, was mystical experience induced by psychedelics. There's a whole school of thought about the Amanita Muscara mushroom being sort of the foundation of Christianity, wow. which is, I've not gone too far down that rabbit hole, but it's definitely credible. Mm -hmm. uh, Hinduism, you have Soma, this 
plant-based concoction that allows one to commune with the gods. And there's circumstantial, but I think strong evidence that religion grew out of mystical experience. Mystical experience doesn't have to come from psychedelics, but I think that's sort of the most reliable and probably the most common way throughout history. So I think that's arguably, but I would argue the reason that religious institutions have veered off course is it's become not about this mystical experience, but about these books and these teachings and then this political agenda. And then more and more people, I think, feel like the traditional places that they would look for wisdom and guidance have failed. Failing them. So I think the confluence of all of that, I think what we're going to see is pretty revolutionary. And that's my fear is I think it's going to, it could be so revolutionary because any, the sort of status quo, I think if, how can I put it? I think if some of the powers that be realized how revolutionary psychedelics are likely going to be, they might be trying harder to shut it down. Mm. You know, just the way it makes you question consumer culture. Yeah. I mean, the real impetus behind the initial crackdown was, it was the Vietnam War and people realizing that people doing LSD were questioning the war and and offering these really spirited oppositions to it. So this is, you know, psychedelics are inherently countercultural because they're counter-establishment because when you take psychedelics, yeah. you realize that 90% of what you think is true is just culture. It's just things that have, you've never questioned because it's always been there. Yeah, and then you start questioning it. Well, is this the best way to have a government? Is this the best way to for commerce to work? Is this the best way for love to work? Is this right. the best way? And when you look at those things, often the answer is no. We can do better. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's fascinating. <laughs> Let Let's do the. I have so many more questions yeah. to ask you. So let's do these as quick fire, so we could get to them as many as, as possible. I want to know, when did you get the idea for writing The Mushroom Cure, and what has the response been, and, and has that surprised you? As I was going through these experiences that I recount in the show, things were bad, as you know, from seeing the show. And mm-hmm. there was always a sense, for many years, my assumption was I was probably going to, I wasn't actively suicidal, but I kind of assumed that's how things would end for me, because I couldn't imagine going on. But as I had this, these experiences happen, there was still a sense like, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but if I do somehow survive, I'm going to tell people this story. Yeah. Because whether I'm good or bad as a performer or writer, the story itself, I think, is a remarkable story. And it's a mysterious story. I think that's what motivated me to do it is I still don't totally, all these coincidences, meeting this woman after reading this study. In and, Times Square. Yeah. There's a wonder to the story that makes mm-hmm. me want to share that with other people. So- and it's all true. I think we should mention that's too. A, yes, like, it's, it's totally true. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah, and, and I think that was part of it too. Is I wanted to like, wow, this actually happened, and I want to share this with people. So it was, you know, one thing started to stabilize for me. I wrote it really quickly because it was just kind of honestly, a lot of it was drawn from my journals at the time, more or less verbatim. Yeah. So what surprised you? What has the response been to the show? Or did it surprise you? You know, I didn't have a background in theater. I mean, I was doing stand-up, but it is... So I first thought this was going to be a stand-up show. But then once I started talking about this stuff on stage, I realized this there's too much narrative. It's a, it's. I mean, it's comedic. It's but, funny, but it's not all funny. Right. It's not all funny. So what surprised me, I'm surprised that I have not won a Tony Award yet. <laughs> is it a Tony's Theater? I actually don't know. Or is that Emmys? I don't know. No, Emmys or TV. Yeah, Tony's. Anyway, Tony's or TV. No, I... Nothing. I I don't think there's been much surprise because I didn't have much expectation. I actually I can answer this. 
I think what's been the most surprising thing is also the most gratifying thing, which is the way it's connected to people who don't necessarily have OCD, but something about seeing, I think because I don't have a theater background, there's a certain vulnerability in the show that comes from my lack of polish (laughs) and craft. And I think most people probably haven't seen someone just be that vulnerable and open on stage. Again, I didn't do it knowingly. It was just kind of like, I'm just going to tell the story. Yeah. But I, what's been surprising and, and really rewarding is hearing how that touches people in the sense of they may not have OCD, but just seeing someone be so open. Feeling their feelings. Yeah. And being so Letting open. it out. Yeah. Letting it out. Exactly. It's kind of saying, hey, it's okay to suffer. Because I think one of the ways that social media is is unhealthy is it's very easy to assume that that's the total of everyone else's yeah. life. Oh, they're winning these awards. They're doing this. They're going right. on vacation. And meanwhile, my life, most of my experience is interior and not all of that is happy. Yeah. So it's very, people don't talk, I and mean, there's more of it now, but people generally don't talk about their suffering. So I think hearing yeah. someone be open about their suffering generally makes other people feel better about themselves and less alone. Yeah, yeah, that's what it did for me. This decision-making, we evolved for a time when decision-making was quite different because decisions 10,000 years ago, even a thousand years ago, even 500 years ago, and even to some extent, 20 years ago, technology has accelerated this trend. Decisions tended to be really more critical survival value. You know, you're deciding, am I going to hunt in in that cave or this cave? You go in the wrong cave, you get eaten by a bear. They were also time-limited. You didn't spend four weeks being like, well, which cave should I go in? You weren't researching caves online. And uh, now, so yeah, I think those two qualities, there's more, but those are the two that come to mind. Decisions were generally time limited and they really were critically important. So I would hypothesize that our decision-making, our neurological decision-making apparatus evolved to assume that decisions were all really important. They were about starvation and survival and reproduction and so now we're using that same brain to make decisions about, well, do I want the pad tie or the pad CU? Do I want to go see this movie or that movie? Do I want to stream this show or this show? Yeah, there's so many choices yeah. on shows just alone. <laughs> and they're not and it's and so these decisions are not that important, but I think it's easy to get into it feeling like whatever decision is the decision on our plate, that is the decision that is important. Yeah, or like life optimizing is yes. so something we can do now of like Yeah. We have Yelp. So it's like, I don't want to just, if I'm having a sandwich, I'm not just having a sandwich. I'm going to have the best sandwich around me. And before we just didn't know what other people were eating or where the best sandwich was. You just went to the one on your street, you know? And, you know, living in this city puts an exponent on all of that. But just Netflix also and the internet and yeah, everything you're saying is just. Yeah. And those decisions are time limited in the past, you know, where now you right. have, you can spend six weeks thinking about where you're going to go on vacation and you yeah. can. And as our lives become unstru- more unstructured, I mean, for me, it's like deciding what to wear. And the, and they talk about decision fatigue, like how Steve Jobs wore the same turtleneck every day oh, because yeah. he knew he had so many decisions. And I kind of have like the same like little uniforms that yeah. I have of like, I, I every season I kind of have like the capsule wardrobe situation. Yep. And it's like, I don't have the structure of my job of like, I have to be somewhere at this time. I can structure my day anytime I want. And I, I, I take kind of what I was doing with 
calorie counting and a lot of my eating disorder stuff has manifested into work and planning uh-huh. my day. I, I get kind of a high from thinking of like, okay, am I going to go to the workout class in the morning or at noon? Mm-hmm, am I going right. to do this work at this time? But then if I do it at that time, then I, when am I going to eat? When am I going to do that? Yeah. And I need to call that person. I have a call. And it's like, because I don't, and last week I was, I was in Denver for a work thing where everything was structured. I was, I was shooting something. And so I knew where I had to be at every single second. And my anxiety just was like gone. Yeah, because I like didn't have to make any. I couldn't make any decisions. I knew I'd packed, so I knew what I was going to wear. I'd brought snacks, like the meal time, like every single thing was chosen for me in advance. So I kind of do that too. Of like, I try to do that for myself every day. Of like, kind of making a schedule for myself is so much cozier to me than just like allowing the day to unfold. Right, and then grappling with those decisions. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, really, what it comes down to for me is, uh, I. I don't want to get too much on this because I know we're, 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 I've been rambling a lot, but this whole, it's learning to surrender that stuff fairly quickly yeah. rather than hold on to it and ruminate. And, you know, part of what I talk about in the show is I found this 12 step program, essentially uh, it's called obsessive compulsive anonymous. It's OCD. It's mm-hmm. like AA, but for OCD. And that's especially recently, I drifted away from a long, for a long time. And then in recent months I've gotten back into it. And that that's very helpful. Also the idea of service, I think, mm. is is very, very helpful for me. Just getting out of, well, what am I going to optimize for myself to how can I help someone yeah. else? Yeah. It's like that Ansan Suchi quote. Have you heard that? When I don't think so. when you're feeling helpless, help someone. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's 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 tough. And this city I think is an extreme because we also so many people and so many opportunities in such a small space. I mean, within 30 minutes there's so many experiences you and I could yeah. have here. Yeah. If we were in Denver, there'd still be a lot, but fewer. But there's probably, I mean, maybe Tokyo. There's very few places where you can have more yeah. diverse experiences. And even anywhere, like I've thought about leaving before too and asking myself, like, I love New York. I always wanted to live here. But is it like this bad boyfriend for me that <laughs> yeah. like is like <laughs> I, lo- I love, but is like not loving me? Yeah. And, you know, I've questioned that, but it's like wherever you go, there you are, you know? If yeah. I move somewhere else, like... I maybe I would have less decisions, but it would just kind of be like me having the capsule wardrobe. Like I still have the anxiety. It's just gonna go somewhere else, you know? So it's like learning to learning to have a day that's not structured and being flexible and like using that as an opportunity of like that is personal growth. Like that is my medicine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Okay, let's a couple more quick fire things. So we talked about this of like I want to know how how do you find this stuff affects relationships? You know, I was saying it was difficult for me mm-hmm. to articulate this to my boyfriend. And, you know, he's very even where I'm really up and down yeah. and spiral and reactive. And it's hard for us to communicate. It's hard for him to see that. So how have you dealt with this in, in relationships? And, like, what kind of advice do you have, I guess? Yeah, it's been – I'm writing about this in the new show. I don't know if it'll make it into the final version, but – and one thing that I, one thing I'm trying to focus on the show is like, what are areas where I still have some shame? <laughs> Let me write about those. And one has been the difficulty being in really like committed relationships. I don't mean I've been, I've actually never cheated on anyone, but I haven't been able to the pattern. How much do I want to reveal of this? Well, so this relate, this significant relationship ended, the OCD started and since then, I wrote this line a few days ago for the show. You know, there's, the pattern has been, with most women, there's been a very significant chronological or geographical disparity. They've been much younger or live far away or both. And I think 
what's happening or what's happened. And now I've, it's shifted, I should say somewhat in the last year. My brain, I think because I had this profound heartbreak that mm-hmm. then produced OCD, my brain kind of wants to keep me safe and is like, so the, my tendency has been when I meet someone who could potentially be like a partner, yeah. romantic partner, I will size them up and almost invariably find reasons why it can't work, you know, yeah. things that aren't quite right. You started to do this with Grace Yeah, exactly, right. It's about on this show. And it's not even like these are things that are bothering me in the moment, but it's more like really the question I'm asking myself. Um, I had, uh, we probably don't have to get into this, but I had a uh, an energy healing session. I don't like that term because I feel like half the people who hear that are like, what sort of hippie bullshit is that? And the other half are like, well, what sort of energy yeah, healing? Be more specific. Right? Well, yeah. you're with the ladder. Right, here it's through the ladder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but something came out that clarified a lot about this for me. This was just like two weeks ago. This energy healer used the analogy. It's kind of like one of these little, you know, you go, when you're a kid, you go to a restaurant, they give you a placemat with like a maze on it. Yeah. And for me, it's kind of been like, well, before I go on that maze, I want to know exactly how I'm going to get through totally. to the other side. Yeah. It's like me planning my day. Yeah. Like I'm not going to get involved with this person unless if I'm pretty sure that I could marry them and they could bear my children. Like I'm not thinking of it in those terms in my brain, but it's kind of you're like- You're not being present. Yeah, exactly. Not at all. It's right. figuring out where is this going to go. And as a result, I've kind of not allowed myself to- have significant relationships with people who, you know, I could. And, but then if I meet somewhere, I'm like, well, they're way younger. They live 3000 miles away. I can't go anywhere anyway. Might as well just, you know, go for it. But then, because I think my heart does want to open, what happens is, especially if we're having an intense physical sexual connection, I start developing feelings Mm -hmm. for this person. But the reasons why it couldn't work from the beginning are still there. And so it's kind of like, it, it doesn't work out. Yeah. And that's been the pattern for, yeah, for for a long time. Yeah. More than a decade. But there have been, in recent years, in the re- literally the last year, I've had a couple of relationships where I've been able to see that happening. I've been able to see the kind of, you know, sizing it up, can this work out? Or finding problems like, oh, they're not, you know, they're, they, they lack this quality or they have too much of this quality or I don't know. But going to my heart and saying, all right, but how do I, do I want to see this person? Is there an excitement? Yes, there is. Mm -hmm. Well, then I'll just do it, even though my brain is going to do that thing. And then what I've found, which has been, which has been great is at a certain point, my brain kind of shuts up. It's kind of like, oh, you're doing this. Okay. All right. We're not going to throw you off for this. So the thoughts may still be there, but once I've spent enough time with someone that's like my lived experience and felt experience become primary rather than these thoughts, these abstract thoughts about well, what's going to happen in five years. Yeah. But it's been a long road. I mean, I've I've been yeah, it's been it's been yeah. a long road. I struggle with that too. My boyfriend doesn't live in New York, and we also don't have a plan of like how it could work. And yeah. it's just like I don't want to move there, and you don't want to come here. So we're just like, and I'm just kind of at this point today, at least. Who knows in the future? <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, all right, well. Today, I still want to be with you and I'm yeah. having fun. I don't know what it's going to be like tomorrow. And I'm just going to like, I'm, it makes today more pleasant if I'm just like okay with not knowing. Yeah. Even though like my mind, as you can relate to, isn't really cool with that. But right. I like am trying to instruct it to be. So anyway, 
Okay, let's let's these are some quicker quick fires. <laughs> uh, okay, what's the best thing you've eaten in the last week? First thing that comes to mind. Mm. Oh, last night I had this place on West Forest Street, Galaga Galanga, this Thai place. Mm. Really good. I got this uh fried duck kind of stir fried. Mm. Yeah. Great. Thai food's great. What's your favorite part of your life right now? <sighs> There's a lot of parts. I mean, I'm <laughs> I feel cheesy to say I have a lot of gratitude. I have a pretty amazing life. I mean, I get to live here. I don't have a day job. I get to write. Yeah. I get to perform. That's a lot. Yeah. Stand-up especially has been very... Stand-up is always kind of, you know, it's always up and down. You're, you're so dependent on the audience, you know, and you're getting laughter. But stand-up has been very sweet recently. I've found a lot of joy in that. And writing this new show, as terrifying as it is with a deadline pressure, there's a lot of sweetness in that too. Yeah. What are your writing routines? Do you have any writing routines? Ugh. And don't don't shame me by <laughs> by highlighting the fact that I, well so now that I mean so let's I think we talked we weren't running their tape recorder so this new show I've known about this for a long time uh-huh. and I'm only really digging in now when I have to put something on stage in two and a half weeks but I think there might it's either insane or there's a sort of genius there where I think this is what yeah. I said to you where it's like part of me sure. I yeah. yeah I have to. I've reached the point because perfectionism is a, is the OCD is a lot better. Perfectionism is a big challenge for me and I don't produce a lot of stuff because mm-hmm. of the perfectionism. But now it's like with the show coming up in two and a half weeks, I'm more afraid of not having a show full stop than I'm afraid of having an imperfect show. Yeah. So now I'm running. So now I've been waking up and putting in a couple of hours. I mean, the crux of the routine such as it is, is unplugging my router so I can't get online turning off my phone, putting it in another room and, you know, I'll try, I'll try to crack, crack down for like two hours or so at a time. Yeah. Done is better than perfect. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I like that. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for taking the time to, we're not done quite yet, but thank you for taking the time to, to do this. <laughs> oh no, in the this midst is fun. This is, I'm, I'm well, enjoying Well, hopefully this. we'll help fill the shows once it's out. <laughs> right, It'll be right. all let exactly. it out. Exactly. It'll all, yes. It'll be a little, a little tribe. <laughs> So speaking of that, what are your morning and evening rituals or routines or things you do to to wind down at the end of the day as someone who doesn't have an office job or to get started in the in the morning? So I do a lot of aromatherapy. Mm. No, I'm joking. No, oh, I was like, <laughs> what kind of essential oil are we working with? <laughs> no, I'm sure I should. Every, every sort of discipline or practice that I've been like, what sort of bullshit is that? Whenever I've tried it, I'm like, oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> like without exception. Well, I was just thinking when you talked about Reiki or you talked about energy healing, I was like, how cool would it be to combine that with psychedelics and yeah. you know, have like someone doing Reiki on you, have a therapist there, have someone with, that. really? I, I did a guided mushroom journey with an underground therapist. Again, he's a licensed therapist, uh-huh. but he's not supposed to be giving me drugs. Right. Um, who's this incredible body worker, energy worker. Cool. I might like get his name out. Yeah, yeah. I, he he's he's legit. And I've had I was I was seeing a woman who when I first started doing ayahuasca, who was a, a Reiki master. I'm always a little skeptical of that term. I'm like, you're still on your parents' cell phone plan. Are yeah. you really a master? <laughs> master I know. But I won't judge. No, no, she's awesome though. Should be like practicer, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, well, it seems and it's like a six week course. I'm like, yeah. you really a master? master? <laughs> I actually know nothing about Reiki. Yeah, so. me neither. I, well, that's not true. We have an episode. I will link to it in the show notes. Oh, cool. I talked to Reiki person. I'll listen to it. But so she would do, when I was doing ayahuasca, she would do remote Reiki on me. Mm. And it seemed to be some correspondence where cool. she'd be like, at this time I was doing this. I'd be like, oh, I was having this experience. Yeah, that's cool. But no, my, my morning ritual, I don't know what's inspired this recently, but I've always 
you know, I was very obsessive about meditation for years. Then it became, I say in the shy, this little line, like if I could just attain enlightenment, everything would be perfect. If I could just attain enlightenment, everything would be perfect. That's not a mantra. So I gave up meditation because I saw that I was using it and, you know, using it essentially means mm -hmm. to an end, but I've gotten back into it uh, sporadically. And then the last what month or two, TM or just uh, sitting on this, this red thing uh -huh. right there and general just breath awareness, uh -huh. but more, I'd say even body awareness, just trying to be present. Cool. So my morning routine now for the past few weeks is I wake up, I do a little bit of prayer writing, mm. something new that I've been doing. Kind of morning pages-esque? It's more like prayers, you know, trying to cultivate a connection to, mm. I don't know what term to use, God, higher power, which for me could just be a part of my brain that I can't ordinarily mm -hmm. access. That's part of what this new show is maybe about is an inquiry about what that is, but the flow, whatever you want to call it, yeah. I find if I just try to pray, my mind wanders and writing. So I'm literally just writing prayers, kind of. I'll do that. Again, that's new. I don't know how long that'll last. And then I'll sit on this cushion for 20 minutes. Yeah. Then I turn on my phone. If there's nothing absolutely mission critical, I'll do a little bit of writing and then I'll, I'll eat um, six to eight eggs for breakfast. I eat a lot of eggs. Really? Yeah. I, I thought that was like an aromatherapy I, I, line. <laughs> no, I eat a, I, it's a I lot eat of a eggs. Huge, I, I eat a huge amount in general, especially eggs. I have some <laughs> weird dietary habits. But And then evening, yeah, you know, I'd probably, because I'm usually doing shows at night, often I can be a little bit of like, I've found this recently, a little like compulsive workaholic, but not actually productive at night. Oh, I'll come home totally. and it's like I'm pulled to my computer. But it's like circles. Yeah, yeah circles. I'm not doing too. anything productive. Yeah. And after like 40 minutes, I'm like, I'm like, I would have. I could have just rested. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I could have read or watched Netflix or, but it there. So there is some sort of addictive pull because I'm yeah, being I totally too. transparent and honest. I've been doing that. Like I'll get home from shows at midnight and I'll do that for like 45 minutes and it doesn't serve yeah. any purpose other yeah. than feeding some part of my brain. Well, that, now you have this recorded so yeah. you can hopefully remember. <laughs> Call, I've called myself out on it. Oh, I want to pick up on something you said about yeah. your your weird food habits because a lot of my I'll show you my refrigerator on okay. the way out. It's pretty. I mean, pretty, I have uh, a, I have a lot too, which mine are like <laughs> definitely. I think if someone with these sorts of tendencies, like a lot of it goes to food and body mm -hmm. stuff. But has that been where? Because a lot of my decision making comes with food and deciding what to mm -hmm. eat and all the some of it is life optimization in yeah. a normal amount, but some of it is like you know everyone has like get to order envy sometimes at a restaurant but mine is like extreme of like mm -hmm. these sorts of things or i i kind of know what the combination that works is and makes mm -hmm. me feel okay and have you struggled with that or found no, any enlightenment I, with I that i haven't i've been amazingly i was always someone who was skinny no matter how much i ate mm -hmm. and, and i thought i was still that way until about it's about 10 months ago i was with a friend and i was getting some jeans and i tried them on and I was looking in the mirror and I was like, wait, I have a belly. And I think I've had it for years. I literally, it was like the opposite of body dysmorphic disorder. <laughs> I thought I was still like pretty skinny. And I mean, I'm not obese, but I have a belly now. And for a while I was like, oh, I don't, I want to get rid of my belly. But I've people have told me that my face looks better, that I'm a little more filled out. I look less gaunt. So I think the belly is here to stay. So I'm not, it's more just, I, I seem to require a huge amount of calories and I always have. And so it's more just, getting in the calories in a way that doesn't make me feel bogged down. Mm -hmm. So I eat a lot of eggs, two avocados a day, a lot of yogurt and granola, a lot of fruits and vegetables, a, a good amount of meat. Um, sounds, I just eat a lot. Sounds good. And yeah, I'm also I hungry. Like I fairly, yeah. 
it's like, you know, your combination. Like I do too. I know yeah. the things that make me feel great when I eat them. Like I like the same, I'm someone who can eat the same kind of thing me like too. all the time I, yeah. and be totally fine with that. And then every once in a while I crave something, but like, I know you just like kind of figured out what works for you, which yeah. is great. My friend has a really interesting podcast called Food Psych, which is kind of about our weird obsessions with food. And oh, really? It's wonderful. Sure. Yeah, it's so good. Okay, so this is a time you mentioned your new prayer journaling practice. What do you think about God, spirituality, what happens when we die, all of that? So this is kind of what my new show is focusing on. And I don't think this will be the title of the show, but a potential title I've been considering. Exclusive. Is, yes, <laughs> this is the scoop is something etarian because I, mm, I guess yeah. where I, the idea I like of, that. I don't know if I love it as a title, but the concept, uh-huh. and maybe it will be, the idea that, well, nothing is an idea in the human brain. We've never found nothing anywhere. What I mean by that is, so I guess I'm talking about this specifically in reference to like kind of what happens when we die. Is mm-hmm. there nothing? And you can't point to nothing. There's no examples in nature of nothing. Even deep space, it was thought to be a vacuum, but it's actually the soup of different particles and energies. Mm -hmm. So the idea that after we die, we pass into this state that only exists in the human imagination, there's no evidence it exists anywhere outside of the human imagination, seems to me fantastical. It seems like that to me seems like a crazy leap of faith. Yeah. It seems much more logical to assume that if we return to anything, it would be everything which exists everywhere. Yeah. So I feel like there's, it's hard to use words, but intelligence is a word I could use. I don't think it's a good word for it, but there's an order and intelligence. It's beyond our comprehension, but yeah, it seems absurd to me to believe. I mean, I talk about physics and some of this writing with the new show and there's a lot of bullshit in contemporary physics. There's a lot of stuff which is essentially a belief system. It's not based on hard empirical data. It's based on math that elegantly explains certain things, but there's no reason why that math should be true. And in fact, it makes certain assumptions that are not, I know I'm speaking abstractly because I don't want (laughs) to go off on a whole tangent here, but yeah, even let's make it very simple. The big bang, the idea that, you know, everything unfolded from this single particle, uh, you know, the compressed particle and particles and maybe the right word, but point of energy and density 13.8 billion years ago, you know, and the obvious question is, all right, what was there right before that particle? What put that particle there? Right. <laughs> so the fact is there's, we see order and intelligence. And again, those words aren't quite right, but you see it in the way a tree grows towards the light, the way roots can somehow sense when they're getting up against obstacles and avoid them. You see it in the behavior of, you know, ants, colonies. There's an intelligence there. Un- I mean, they're uh, and, mosquitoes. And they react. Coming an oak tree. Yeah. It seems like. A intel- baby coming out of a vagina. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems like everything is intelligent. Yeah. I wrote this line. I like the idea of. The traditional view, like God's in the cloud, God's in the clouds in heaven, but maybe God is in the cloud, like distributed divinity. Just yeah, yeah. Rain. I believe that there is an intelligence beyond our comprehension, clearly, because I don't know how my own heart is beating. Yeah. But I also think one of the greatest human fallacies has been the belief that we can understand that intelligence enough to write a book about it. Yeah. And then kill people who don't believe in that book or right. who like a different book. I mean, I think it's very weird. Yeah. 
I mean, all this stuff, it's about experience and words are not experience, but I think our brains can get confused. They can think words and ideas are experience. I have a line again, I don't, I don't know if it'll be in the show, but it's like trying to, trying to experience God by reading a book is like trying to experience sex by watching porn. <laughs> At best, you're getting someone else's secondhand experience. Right. right. So to tie it back to psychedelics, I think, yeah, I think that's a lot of the value is that having this actual experience of connection to something beyond or within whatever preposition you want to use, but something that's not within our ordinary consciousness. Yeah. I think the fact that the Pope has not taken mushrooms is scandalous. I'm not even joking. Like you can't, if you believe in God and everything is unfolding according to his plan, then it can't be coincidence that there's literally hundreds of plants and fungus that interact with the human nervous system in a very yeah. specific way that catalyze an experience of divinity for people. Yeah. Cool. All right. So before we end, this is just a time to recommend things. So TV, films, books, movies, music, anything you want to recommend that you mm. ha- has helped. You don't have to do it in all those categories, but whatever's coming to mind right now. Cool. I'm reading, and this probably is not original for other people who have been on your po- podcast, but I'm reading, it's a new translation of Rilke's Ill- Elegies. Mm. You haven't I read the, know, oh, yeah. He, like what strikes me about it, I read another translation a couple of years ago, and this one, I don't know if it's, I like it better or worse. The one I read before is Stephen Mitchell, which I definitely recommend. This mm-hmm. one is Edward Snow, I think, also good, but you know, this stuff was written early 20th century, 100 years ago, a lot of this stuff. And it's just so, something about reading it, I think there's a tendency to assume that a lot of what I'm thinking and feeling is peculiar to the time I live in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Questions about sex and relationships and my purpose. And and you read this and it's the same stuff. It's so funny. <laughs> like, it's all, and, and just as people, like, yeah. all the same, like me seeing your show was like, oh man, like that's yeah. Yeah. crazy. It's not just me or like, we all think it's just us or it's just the internet or it's just yeah. the day. And it's like, it's just how it is to be a person maybe. Yeah. He talks about like this part where he's talking about social insecurity and being fatigued, hanging around people. But it's, the it's, I think it's pronounced Duino Dono elegies, D-U-I-N-O elegies. It's his, considered his masterwork and it's cool. a profound teaching there and profound wisdom. And I guess if we're going to talk about Rilke, his other well-known thing is Letters to a Young Poet. That I think is the best, that I would definitely recommend. Okay. I think that is the most concise manual on how to be a human that cool. I've ever read. Cool. Like the two, him, Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, and that I would definitely recommend the Stephen Mitchell translation. Emerson's essays also kind of really, he kind of breaks it down, but Rilke is a lot more concise. Shunru Suzuki, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Those I'd say are the three kind of, I don't know if I call them self-help books, perennial yeah. wisdom books, music. I'm a big Guided by Voices fan. I mean, they have so many albums. Not all of them are good. TV shows. I don't watch much TV, but I recently saw the tick on Amazon I thought was really brilliant. It's a it. it's a live action remake of what was an animated series. And cool. yeah, just re- re- really entertaining, really well done. I don't know that those 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 That's come to great. mind. I think I've, I've filled enough airtime already. You, yeah, if you think of anything else, let me know. Is there anything that you wish that I would have asked you that you still want to let out? Anything that you never get to talk about that you wish that you did? Is there anything that feels incomplete? 
no, I think I'm finally fulfilled. I think after a lifetime of trying to find the answer, I think this interview has finally, <laughs> it's amazing, brought me there. Amazing. They say a good <laughs> interview should feel like therapy. So maybe, maybe I'm it's, the therapist you're looking for yeah, to tie this all this together. Is, you don't believe in therapy, but you believe in interviewing. This is true. <laughs> well, no, thank you so much yeah. for doing this. We always end in, in kind of a interesting way with taking letting out a deep breath together yeah okay so we'll do it inhale yeah let it out <sighs> it's nice right and we're also yeah. letting it out with everyone listening so yeah always feels a little i feel better. like my exhalation was too forceful how was that you want to do it again maybe should we we do should it should we might as well just in case a little more dainty yeah one more time okay right. inhale everyone let it out Great. We have two. We have two. Good, Amazing. Good. Thank you so much. This Thank is great. you. So where can people find you and where can people find out about the show? I'll link to all of it in the show notes when this is out, but you'll be doing the new show in New York for yeah, a couple so months? Yeah, I'll be doing a couple. Well, no, I'll be doing just a few probably kind of warm-up work in progress shows, and then it'll be officially premiering in San Francisco at the Marsh Theater starting February 8th, and I think we're cool. going to run through March 30th. And then the Mushroom Cure, I probably will be doing that at other places at some point. Cool. But yeah, my website at themushroomcure.com. Yeah, we'll have, it all. We'll have yeah, it all in the show notes. But that's great. Maybe we can get a let it out group. We, yeah, we cool. do meetups to oh, come cool. to the come to your new show yeah. and the mushroom cure, especially if you're doing it around. Cool. Cool. All right, that was my episode with Adam Strauss. I hope you loved it. If you're in New York and you want to go see Adam do comedy, he's the comedian in residence every Friday and Saturday in Tribeca at the Tribeca Comedy Lounge and at Dark Horse Comedy Club. And from March 10th through 31st, he's doing two shows at the Marsh Theater in San Francisco of The Mushroom Cure. And his new show, The Uncertainty Principle, which is what he decided to call it. And then from April 4th to May 5th, he's going to be doing The Mushroom Cure at the Greenhouse Theater in Chicago. You can find out more about everything him in the show notes at themushroomcure.com or at his website, adamstrauss.com. Anyway, go see him. Highly recommend it. I'm so excited to see his new show and to go see him do comedy. And I obviously loved The Mushroom Cure and... Would love to probably see that again too. Anyway, check out all of his stuff. If you're still listening, great. <laughs> Tweet at Adam and I the emoji for this week's episode. Comment it on our Instagram to let us know you listened all the way to the end. But first, I want to tell you my likes and learns, the LNL section of the week, something that I've been learning, something that I've been liking. Something that I learned is Really something I learned from this episode with Adam of the concept of ghost snakes or worrying about something before it happens. And I liken this to when you're cold, when you're walking around New York City or Chicago or wherever you live when it's cold and you tense up, that actually makes you colder. I've heard that when you surrender to it and you just relax, it makes you warmer. It's the same thing when you get in a car accident. If you tense up, you're more apt to break more bones than if you just relax. So, so hard to do. And I don't know how to do it, but I'm trying. I'm trying to not worry until I have to. I'm trying to relax more and be more present and be more mindful. And I'm not doing great at it, but when I do remember, I feel a lot better. So that's one thing I'm learning. And one thing I'm liking 
just quickly because it's the first thing that came to mind. I'm drinking a Health Aid ginger kombucha. And let me tell you, that flavor is the most gingery of all the brands, which I really appreciate. It's feeling good on my stomach in this moment, and that's all I can think of right now. I think when your heart's in a tender spot, you tend to be a bit more raw and open to everything. All of the highs are higher, even like a little kombucha that I'm just enjoying and the lows are lower. That's just where I'm at right now. I hope you guys are great. If you want to start a podcast, I would love to help you. The link to let a podcast out is in the show notes. And the emoji for this week's episode is the mushroom, obviously. Simple, obvious, probably didn't even need to listen to the end to know that's what I was going to say. But let us know that you're all the way to the end of this long episode. Thank you so much. Share it with a friend who you think that it might help and let them know you're thinking of them. That would be a really nice thing to do. And leave a review on iTunes if you're still listening. That would be cool. And sign up for my Let It Out letter. I'm giving you so many things to do right now. It's embarrassing, but it would be cool if you were on the list for learning more about Let It Out. And it's a personal essay from me and links to things that I love around the internet, articles and videos and movies. Are you guys watching the Oscars this weekend? What movies did you like? I love seeing all of the Oscar films and all the shorts and then watching the Oscars and filling out ballots. Something I very much enjoy. I will be watching them. Okay, I love you guys and I will see you on the social media, in the listener Facebook group, all the places. Maybe at Adam's show, we should all go to one of his comedy shows together. That'd be cool. All right. I love you guys. Bye. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Emmy's Organics. They make these delicious treats that will satisfy a sweet tooth. They're made with organic coconut and almond flour. All their ingredients are natural, organic, no artificial ingredients, no preservatives. Everything's vegan, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free. They go great with a cup of coffee or a little dessert or snack throughout the day. I have them for breakfast. My friend Carolina puts them in her kid's lunch. They're nationwide at Whole Foods or at Sprouts or CVS. They're really everywhere. And you can also get them at emmysorganics.com where you can get 40% off your first order. Again, that's 40% off your order with the code Let It Out at checkout at emmysorganics.com. Another reason why I love this company is because the people. The founder, Samantha, is lovely and her husband, Ian, made this company from scratch in a home kitchen in 2009 and they are actually a certified B Corp, which I learned from them is considered the highest standard of corporate responsibility, which I think is really cool. I love this company. I love these snacks. The peanut butter flavor happens to be my favorite. Second is the chocolate chip. Honestly, they're all good. The brownie's really good too. There's a matcha and a lemon. You know, I love them all, but those are my favorite peanut butter. I mean, can't go wrong. 40% off your first order at emmysorganics.com. Use the code let it out at checkout. 
Today's episode is brought to you in part by Four Sigmatic. I love Four Sigmatic. I've been using their products for years. Taro told me when he did my podcast years ago that I was one of the first people in America to try their mushroom elixirs back in 2013. I've been a huge fan ever since. I love the company so much. They have these good for you superfood elixirs. There's a hot cacao mix. There's a matcha mushroom mix. They have coffees. They're great for on the go. There's a chai that I love. There's nothing artificial in them. And turns out that chaga and reishi and these superfood mushrooms can do different things for you. They can help relax you and they can give you energy. And they're really lovely teas and blends. There's a chaga elixir. We love to blend them warm. I've been having their hot cacao mix a lot with macadamia nut milk. I've been putting it in my coconut yogurt. Amanda puts it in her oatmeal. They're great for on the go and travel. I really, really love their products and they have so many now. They're even getting into skincare. They have a face mask, which I love. You can get 15% off your orders by heading to foursigmatic.com and entering the code Katie at checkout. foursigmatic.com slash Katie. And then also use the code Katie, K-A-T-I-E. That's my name at checkout for 15% off your order. Thank you, Four Sigmatic. 